Well, we are excited today to uh, have one of our missionaries here with us, um, Chris Cobb. Chris and Michelle are two of the missionaries, and their family are two of the missionaries that we support. Uh, they are in Galena, Alaska, which is a bush village on the Yukon River. I'll let him say more about that, but uh, we've been there a number of times, different people from our church. How many of y'all have been to Galena from West? Okay, a number of us have been up there to do work with them. Uh, he represents us there. He is a, a pastor of the only Protestant church in Galena, which is a small community. But also we have sent uh, one of our members, Sam West, uh, uh, Sam Drapers, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sam West is another guy. Drapers, raise your hands. So these are, this is the Draper family, and their uh, oldest son, uh, Sam, was at Tech last year and was in our Rustin Church and uh, felt the call to go and join uh, Chris in Galena. Uh, Chris, if you will share some of that opportunity uh, also before you're done today because uh, we want to support them in that way. If we can send people up, there's a boarding school there. If we can send them up to uh, send some of you up there to serve, uh, it, it's very helpful to Chris and their, to their effort to reach people in that community. Uh, for people who are believers to be in that school. So, uh, so Chris is our representative. This, uh, Chris, you've been there how long, you and Shell? Eight years. So uh, eight years ago, Chris came uh, to our church in Tioga, shared a testimony about how God called him to, to be there uh, when he was praying for God to call somebody else. And, uh, and, and so he's been there since then, and we've been supporting him since then. So uh, we're excited today, Chris, to have you and Shell and the family here with us and Excited to hear what you have to share with us and to challenge us however you will today. And um, we'll listen with intent ears and, and uh, also hearts ready for change. So come, come lead us, brother. Thanks, Glenn. Well, it is a privilege to get to be with you guys. I was uh, trying to remember, I think the last time I was actually with you as a church was almost six years ago. So it's been too long, honestly. Um, if you have a Bible, join me in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15 is where uh, I'm going to be this morning. And um, so Galena, Alaska is, uh, it's probably a place, if you've ever taken a uh, Alaskan cruise or Alaskan tour, Galena was not on the stop. Um, we're closer to the Arctic Circle than we are the nearest Walmart. And uh, if you draw a straight line from Fairbanks to Nome, we're the halfway point of that line. We're about 100 miles from the Arctic Circle 350 miles from the nearest road, and uh, it's a fly-in only community unless you're really brave and you want a snow machine or boat on the Yukon River, uh, which is about 400 miles uh, to, to boat from Fairbanks to Galena. And um, uh, I grew up in Alaska. I uh, moved out of Alaska in the mid-90s and moved to Louisiana. I lived in Louisiana for 16 years and then moved back to uh, Alaska. So we don't watch television because the only thing on TV is reality shows about Alaska and Louisiana. And and we've done both of those. Right? Like, we, we are Duck Dynasty meets Yukon men. And uh, what they call reality TV, my boys call Tuesday. So it's, um, it's absolutely normal um, for us. Our, our life is um, uh, pretty strange. Um, we serve amongst the Khoikhan Athabascan people specifically. They're American Indian. Uh, they're directly related to the Navajo. And uh, uh, they're a, a huge people group uh, in interior Alaska and western Canada. Uh, the Khoikhan peoples uh, of the Athabascan 
uh, or specifically who we work with. There's nine Quaycon villages in our region. Um, Galena is kind of the hub of our region. If you draw a 100-mile line out of Galena and draw a circle, that's the Quaycon region. And of those nine villages, three have a gospel-proclaiming church planted in them. Uh, and I've only ever had uh, three in those. Uh, when you take the 250-plus rural Alaskan villages, our conservative estimate is that 80% of them do not have a gospel-believing church uh, planted in them. Uh, and when you take the state as a whole, considering the road system and places like our urban areas like Anchorage and Fairbanks, uh, on any given Sunday, 8% of Alaskans attend a religious service of any kind. Uh, we're the third least church state in the United States. Uh, and I'm not talking about sub-Saharan Africa or China or Indonesia. This is the United States of America, and it's the, the place that we live, that God has called us to be. We've been there eight years and have experienced um, some incredible challenges. I, I jokingly and not jokingly say Alaska has tried to kill me a number of times. Um, and uh, we've experienced some challenges, but God's been really faithful in, in what he's done to bring people to himself, to change hearts and lives. And uh, we're just excited about uh, the reality of um, what that looks like. Um, as we think about missions, again, normally, we, you know, Alaska normally doesn't fall on people's radar when they think of missions. Um, normally, we think of places on the other side of the planet. So I just want to give you a, a global perspective of where do we stand in 2019 in the realm of global missions. So I want to give you a couple of definitions um, or words and then define them. Um, because if we're, if we're not using the same definitions for words, obviously we can't communicate with each other, right? So the words are unreached and unengaged. So the, the standard definition for an unreached people group, I guess people group would be the third word. A people group is a um, linguist or a, a language, ethnicity, culture that defines a group of people. So think Cajun French. There's like a very well-made defined thing about that, yeah, right? Like it's just its own thing. You can clearly understand that's Cajun. Uh, when you think of people groups around the world, uh, unreached means that less than 2% of the entire population of that culture, that ethnicity, is gospel-believing Christian or evangelical Christian. Uh, the uh, estimate is presently there are over 6,500 unreached people groups in the world today. And some of these people groups are in the millions of people that live in them. When we talk about unengaged, it means that there is little to no missionary or church planting work that is taking place inside of that people group. And there are a little over 3,000 unreached and unengaged people groups in the world today. And there are a little over 350 people groups that have been identified that we do not know of a single Christian ever in that people group, in the 2,000-year history of the church. And this is 2019. So the mission still stands. And the reality of that for us, obviously, as we travel around and as we, uh, as we live in the, the places where we live, just the thought of that and the, the magnitude of that just seems staggering. It seems huge to us. It seems monstrous. When we think of those people groups around the world, the largest country in the world, that, or the, the country that has the most unreached people groups in the world is India. They have the most unreached people, entire cultures that exist in there. When we think of Indians of India, we think they're just one thing. They're very, very much not. They're very diverse. Uh, they have the, the most unreached people groups in them. China is number two. They have uh, the second most unreached people groups 
in them. Does anybody want to care to venture what the third, what possibly might be the third uh, country that has the most unreached people groups in it is? It's the United States of America. And Canada is number six. The reason for this uh, is realities that we have still yet to reach indigenous people groups that live in the United States and something that's called the global diaspora. It's the moving of peoples around the world in a way that has never happened before in human history. Peoples are moving around the globe in a way that has never taken place uh, because of the safeties that are afforded in travel uh, and all of those kind of things. So when we think of places like Houston and Atlanta and New York City, we don't tend to think of uh, Albanians or Afghanis or Somalis. We don't think of these people that if we were in Somalia and doing ministry amongst Somali people, we would understand that they're an unreached people group and we would engage them differently. But we don't go to, to Houston uh, or to New Orleans and think there are unreached people groups that live there. And the Khoikhan Athabascan peoples are such a people group. They are still, uh, they are still an unreached people group. And when we think about that, as it, as it relates to missions, as it thinks to how, how do we as the church engage that, I can't help but think of Paul's ministry as Paul traveled around and shared the gospel and taught and planted churches and did exactly what the Gathering Place Church has been doing for the last eight years of loving people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, this saving truth that we are dead in our sins uh, by nature, that God by his grace sent his one and only son who lived a sinless and perfect life, who died the death that we deserved and took upon himself the wrath that was due our sin. He substituted his righteousness for our rebellion against God and reconciled us before the living God died, was buried, rose again the third day and now sits at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf and drawing men and women to himself. That saving gospel that has transformed our lives is yet not known in places around the world. And Paul went throughout his day and preached the gospel. And I love this aspect of Romans chapter 15 because, you know, when you're reading Romans and studying Romans, it's heavy in theology, it's heavy in doctrine. And so you're reading it and you miss the personal nature of the reality that was a dude walking around telling people about Jesus, just the nature of the story of his life and ministry. Ministry. And so we're going to pick up here in Romans uh, chapter uh, 15, starting in verse 14, as we get a, a personal picture of uh, Paul's ministry life and what it looked like as he was engaging this church in Rome that he had never met before, uh, yet he had wrote this significant, as many theologians would say, the most significant book of the uh, New Testament to help us understand what is it that God has done for us with this incredible gospel that we now know. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, he begins and he says, And concerning you, my brethren... I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. 
For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and around about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Now for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a little while. How many of you have ever had to work on a group project, right? There's giggling because everybody hates those, right? Like you sign up to, you know, you're in, you're in college or you're at work and, you know, the supervisor or the professor walks in and says, all right, we've got a group project. And here's your part. And everybody just kind of has a collective uh-uh, right? Uh, unless you're the person that's like, awesome, because they're going to take care of it for me, right? Like, you know, that, per, you know, if you're like me through, you know, I, I was a, ter- I'm a terrible example of how to like go through seminary, because uh, I learned that if you wait until the last minute, it only takes a minute, right? Like it's, uh, that, that kind of, uh, that kind of attitude is not good for a group project kind of thing. And I was definitely on some of those where I was just like, come on guys, if you don't get your work done, I'm going to have to do them because whatever grades you make, I'm going to make too, right? And we feel the weight of that. We get really agitated when people don't do what was their responsibility, what was their thing to do. What was it that they were supposed to do, right? We, we all know that reality. So let me ask you a question. When we think of these 6,500 unreached and, un, and the 3,500 unreached and unengaged people groups around the world, and we think of it as a group project, let me ask it this way. Who owns the lostness of these unreached people groups? Who owns the lostness of these unreached people groups? Is it one of those things that we can say, ah, you know what, yeah, for those poor people, you know, whatever, I'm glad it's somebody else's job, right? Who owns the lostness of these unreached people groups? Well, in verse 14 and 15, Paul said that he was speaking hard truths as a reminder He was emphasizing to this church that, by the way, remember, he had never met before. He had never encountered this church before. He had never spent time with them. He didn't plant it. He had not discipled them. He had not been their pastor. He just knew that there was a group of believers in Rome, and he was sending this letter to them with the intent of understanding that he was going to be passing through their area on the way to Spain, and he wanted to get to know them and be able to uh, be a part of them and their lives. And he said, concerning you, my brethren, I am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. Like you're a, you're a great church. You're a beautiful church is what he's emphasizing here. And he says, and you're filled with knowledge and you're able to admonish one another. There, this nature of need for pastoral ministry is not a burden for me as Paul because I already know that you already are sanctified in Christ Jesus. The gospel has already transformed your lives. You're living out what it means to be a fully devout follower of Christ. You are filled with knowledge. You know the truth that God has taught. These things that I have told you 
As you read through Romans that are, I mean, huge and powerful and, and foundational for us in Christian life and church and all of those kind of things, you know all of this stuff and you're able to admonish one another. You're, you have the capacity, the maturity to be able to disciple one another. And I know that all of this is true of you, but he says, I'm speaking all of this as a reminder to you. Now, the reality for us as Christians is that most of the time, if we've been in church any length of time, which is this kind of the standard reality for most um, church-going folks in central Louisiana, is that we've been in church a long time, right? So it's kind of like, well, why do I need to go to church again? They're just going to say the same thing that I heard, you know, the last time and going like, yeah, but are you doing it, right? We need it as a reminder, now, I don't read marriage books with the intent of generally learning something new, right? It's not, I'm not going to pick up a marriage book and read, you should date your wife and go, oh, I've never heard of that before, right? Like, you know, those things, it's not, it's not going to be one of the, I read marriage books because I need to be reminded of, dummy, don't you remember that was something you were supposed to be in God? I say, like, oh, yeah, I remember that from the last book, right? And so I need to be reminded of those radical, or those simple truths, those foundational truths, what it is for me to be about in my marriage. So if we can understand that, let me ask you this. How many of you know that as a Christian, you are called to make disciples? Do you know that? Yes. All right. Thank you. Will, Glenn, I'm kind of worried here. You know, right? Like we know that, right? We know we're supposed to make disciples. We know we're supposed to share the gospel. We know those truths. We need to be reminded of that reality. But do you feel that when somebody says, we're church, we're called to make disciples. We're called to go share the gospel with people. Do we feel anything about that? Or we become so desensitized to it, so carterized to the reality that people are lost and that, you know, that they probably don't want to hear what we have to say and it's going to be challenging and we might say something that's going to offend them and all of those kind of things that we just don't feel the weight of the reality that we're called to be make or disciple makers. There's, a, there's a, a wording that gets used a lot in, in church circles that I understand the concept of it, but I would like to shift it a little bit. And it's this statement, every Christian is a missionary. Well, we wouldn't say something like every Christian is a pastor or every Christian is an elder or every Christian is a deacon, right? The apostolos, the sent out ones, those who are set apart by the church to go and bridge either distance or culture to engage a group of people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That's the definition of a missionary. So we send out those who are going to bridge that gap, again, of either distance or culture to engage people with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, this nature of missionaries, which, by the way, is not a, it's, you won't find missionary in the New Testament. It's not a word, but the apostolos, the sent out ones, that office of those who are sent by the church to engage lost people away from where the body of Christ is already functioning to either um, uh, to start the church where it does not exist. That's the missionary. But the reality, church, is that not every Christian is a missionary, but every Christian is a disciple maker. Every Christian is a disciple maker. How do I know that? Because the last marching orders that Jesus gave before he ascended to heaven was this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded you. 
Why? Because I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, teach them to obey all things I've commanded, included go and make disciples. So, uh, specifically, college-age folks that are trying to figure out what is, it, what is God's will for my life, what is my direction, what is all those kind of things, I'm going to make a pretty bold statement here, okay? I know God's will for your life with absolute surgical clarity. God's will for your life is that you would go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that he's commanded you. The question is not what is God's will for my life. The question is where, to whom, and how. That's, that's the questions. God is calling us as the church to be disciple makers. And that is different from those that are making converts or those that are making church members or those that are making proselytes, or any of those kind of things. When we use terms to describe ourselves, if you haven't noticed, I'm big on terms. I think we, we've lost our ability to be able to communicate in churches because we use buzzwords a lot, and we don't mean the same things. Like we use words like grace, and from one church to the next church, they mean absolutely entirely different things. Or the concept of love. We as a culture do not know how to define love anymore. We just lost our ability to do that. Uh, when we define ourselves, a lot of times we use the term Christian. It's not a bad term. It's used two times in the New Testament. It was originally a derogatory term. It meant little Christs. Like, oh, look at the little Christs. And the early Christians are like, yeah, I'm cool with that. Right? So they just took that upon themselves. Uh, and it's good, but they used it two times. The word follower, that's a good one. It's used about 18 times in the New Testament. Believer is used a little bit more. It's used somewhere in the 20s. But mathetes, disciple, it's used 273 times in the New Testament. I think the FBI might call that a clue. Uh, it, is th- it is a learning apprentice. It is thought accompanied by endeavor. It is not the transfer of information. It's the transformation of uh, through information. It is us watching and learning from a master what it means to do. It's get that picture of the, the master smith working with the young apprentice and he's watching there as he hammers down. He goes, okay, how does this work? Oh, I screwed it up. Oh, it's, that's okay because I'm learning how to do this and there's this grace that plays out in it and we learn and then at some point in time we begin to say, well, I don't know everything about this but let me teach you these couple of things that I've learned how to do and this movement of thought accompanied by endeavor is the picture of disciple making. And when Jesus said, go and make disciples, it wasn't just a, a just, just go make disciples. It was go make disciples of all peoples, of all nations, or literally all ethnos, of all ethnicities. All peoples of the world are called to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And it's the message that we've been given. And so we need to be reminded of this hard truth, this hard reality that this is exactly, precisely what God called us to. It's what God has shaped us for. It's what God is sending us out to. So when we think of this concept of disciple making, Jesus gave us a very specific um, statement in this. Uh, He gave us the great commission, go and make disciples, but he also gave us the, the great commandments. Anybody remember what those are? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he equated the two, essentially saying, listen, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you have no idea what it means to love God, 
right? Like those, you can't do those two things separately. If you're going to really love God the way that he's saying there, the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, of course, is quoting an Old Testament principle, an Old Testament statement. This, it wasn't something new that Jesus was throwing out there. This is something that was been there from the beginning. It comes from the heart of God. And this idea of neighbor, what does it mean to love my neighbor? And that was the question that, remember, the religious leader asked him. He said, what do you mean? Well, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Literally a picture of somebody that could not be more different than the Jewish person, right? The, the Samaritans in the Jewish mindset, they were fuel for hell. That's all that they were for. They did not have a, I mean, you know, walk up to somebody, I think you're fuel for hell. You don't think that, you know, if somebody says that to you, you don't think they have a very high view of you, right? You know, that was the, that was the Samaritan, and yet he was the good Samaritan. And he says, which one was the neighbor? So when we think of the Old Testament, especially when you're looking in the book of Proverbs or you're reading through and you read something about neighbor, and you also read the word friend, we need to understand this. They're the exact same word in Hebrew. They're the exact same word. So the question is, how do we translate that? How do we get, when we're reading in Proverbs and it says, you know, this being the, good, the neighbor and then your friend, how do, we, how do we translate those? And it's a question of proximity. A better way to translate it would be to use the old English term fellow, right? You almost have to say that in like a, a you know, an English accent, kind of, you know, my, my fellow, right? And so the idea was your friend was my dear fellow, the one that is close, the one that is, uh, that is abiding in, that you love and you embrace, that is my dear fellow, and the neighbor is the other fellow, right? Just the one that's, that's over there, right? Like I'm not necessarily embracing them. When Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like the first, you love your neighbor as yourself, this, the, the, even the wording of how he does it, you love your neighbor, which in, in this sense, the other fellow is as far away from you as you can get, but yourself is as close to you as it possibly can get. So you love your neighbor as yourself. You are bringing the other fellow in to be your dear fellow. And here's the thing that we need to understand when it comes to disciple making. You are not going to make disciples of the other fellow. You might make a convert, you might make a proselyte, you might make an informed individual, but you will only ever make a disciple of your dear fellow, of those that you have brought from not knowing into relationship with you, that you walk with them in discipleship. Discipleship is messy, it is life on life. It's not the transfer of information. So let me ask a question with you. Who owns the lostness of your next door neighbor? Who owns the lostness of your next door neighbor? In other words, if that person moves into that house, lives for five years, and dies, and stands before God without having had anyone share the gospel with them, whose fault is that? Who owns the responsibility of that? That resulted in the, in the disobedience of somebody saying, yes, God, I know you said go and make disciples of all peoples. Who owns that? Now, you might go, <laughs> I'm in good shape. My next door neighbor's a Christian. They go to, they go to the gathering place. So, ah, I'm good. Awesome. 
you now have an advocate to work with you as you reach your neighbor across the street. Let me broaden it out a little bit. Who owns the lostness of your neighborhood? Or as you think about this, this area, like there's a neighborhood, I'm kind of geographically, you know, not where, who owns the neighborhood that's right over there? Now there's a lot of churches in this area. There's an insane number of churches in this area. Like um, my, uh, my kids, we were, we were uh, traveling from um, Mississippi over to um, Lafayette, Louisiana and driving through backwood countries. Uh, one of my kids was uh, counting dollar stores. Uh, there's a lot of those, right? Um, another one of them was playing a game they had learned from a friend in Mississippi. It was uh, Cows and Cemeteries. You ever heard of this one? You, when you see cows, you count as many cows as you can see, and when you pass a cemetery, all your cows die. Uh, and so they were having fun with that. And the other one was count churches. And they'd, we'd go through a town, and they'd be like one town, there'd be like seven churches, right? And just like, holy cow, right? I mean, the reality of that is going like, when we think of that neighborhood over there, who owns the lostness of that? Well, in reality, we could probably go, well, you know, that, that other church that you had to turn off, you know, on the corner to get here, they really, they're the ones really that own the lostness of that. We don't, that's not our responsibility. We're, you know, however we play, we could, we could, you know, cognitively in our mind segment things out and go, well, this is my area and that's their area and we, we can do that kind of stuff. When I think of the villages that are around me, and I think, who owns the lostness of these villages? The only answer that I have is, Galena Bible Church does. Because there is no one else thinking about them. There is no church there sharing the gospel there. There is no preaching. There is no one that is actively engaging to make disciples, plant churches, start the work of God in these villages. And so these are things that actually do keep me up at night. As I think about the reality of going, God, how? How do I, how do, I do that? How do I, how do I engage in these communities that many of them, they're, they're, you know, it's not like you could just move to the village today. It's, it's not the same. It's just not the you know, some of these villages, everybody in the entire community is related to each other. So it'd be like me moving, you know, showing up at your house, knocking on the door and saying, hey, I'm moving in your living room. And you're like, no, you're not. <laughs> And that reality is the entire community. And so you have to build trust, build relationship, move in, and it's incredibly slow. And most of the villages, the, the average time that it takes for a native person to commit your, memory, your name to memory is about three years because people don't stay. And so they're like, why do I want to invest in you? Why do I want to get to know you? Why do I want to get to like you? Because you're going to leave. It's hard here, right? That's why they make reality shows about places like this, right? They're hard places to live. The coldest temperature that we've seen since we've lived in Galena was negative 70. And that means it can warm up 100 degrees and water is still frozen, right? Like, that's cold. And Sam Draper decided to move there and he runs and posts pictures of himself on Instagram going like, y'all wimps, right? Like, as, you know... I mean, this, this, is where, this is where we live, right? And we do insane things like we grocery shop a year at a time. Uh, we do that because if I shop at the grocery store that is in Galena, and there is one that's there, I'm going to pay 12 bucks for a gallon of milk, 9 bucks for a dozen eggs, and 7 and a half bucks for a gallon of gas, right? Like those kind of things, I'm going like, yeah, I can't do that, right? So the reality is we, we, do, we live differently. We live in ways that are incredibly uh, complicated and challenging for us. Why? 
Because there are people there that don't know Jesus. Paul felt this incredible burden to the Gentiles. That was, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he makes this incredible statement just almost in passing. And it, it just blows my mind because he says, all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, I've preached the gospel everywhere. And we're like, okay, well, we know, the, we know the story of Paul. And so that doesn't seem big to us, except when you say, from Israel to Albania, I've preached the gospel everywhere. There's nowhere that the gospel has not been preached that I haven't worked, that I haven't served, over a thousand miles. And he says this, and it's incredible. He says, I have fulfilled the ministry of God. I have fulfilled the ministry of God. Now what? Fulfilled? Well, we know that not every person from uh, Jerusalem to Illyricum was a disciple of Jesus, right? There were still lots of people who hated Jesus and hated Paul and hated Christians and wanted nothing better for them to cease to exist. How in the world is it that Paul could say the ministry was fulfilled all the way across these places? Well, in all of these places, disciples had been made, churches had been planted, and they had been taught and equipped that they were called to make disciples of their neighbors that they were to be that light, that transforming work that God would use where they stayed to change the nature of dead people into being followers of Jesus Christ. Who owns the lostness of your communities? Think about this also. Who owns the lostness of your relational extent? And what I mean by that is we're a very mobile society. We move, we uh, change, we visit, we vacation. There's places that we, uh, you know, we pop into, right, that may not necessarily be where we live, but there's grocery stores that we shop at and coffee shops that we uh, drink coffee at and places that we vacation that we go to regularly. Do we see those things as supernatural events? That God has granted us to live in such a time and such a place with such resources that we can freely move without significant danger to ourselves to engage people that are far distant from where our house is. These people that we work with, these people that we play with, these people that we vacation with. And do we segment those things off mentally, putting them a part of like, well, I don't want to do anything because, you know, that's, that's that thing. And not realizing that these are the places where God is allowing us to step into that realm of being a missionary, of bridging space, distance, or even bridging culture to say, you know what, I travel to this place all the time, and man, there is this Thai food restaurant that is just killer and there's all these people, and I go there all the time, and I see the same waitress, and do I think cross-culturally? Do I think that maybe, maybe God might use me to be the tip of the spear? To say, God, would you burden my heart? Would you give me eyes to see the need that, is, that I touch, that's, that's mine, that's my reality? 
when I speak to Alaskan churches, churches that are on the road system in Fairbanks and Anchorage, and I, I talk to them about the need for the rural context, it, it blows my mind that we live in the same state, yet they don't see it. They don't, they don't know. It's just, it's, it's something they know the rural context exists, but it's just totally foreign to them. Alaska is a gigantic state. If you cut Alaska in half, both halves are bigger than Texas. You can fit Texas, California, and Montana inside the state of Alaska, and yet we have 750,000 people that live in the state of Alaska. And most of them, over half of them, live in Anchorage. So that's their world. They don't think outside of that. And so as I talk to these churches that are there saying, listen, as you travel for work or school or whatever, and you touch these places, do you see yourself as the tip of the spear, as as the point of which God might use you to find a person of peace and to engage? I've loved the ministry of the gathering place because that's been the reality of this church since I've been in relation. Every time I talk with Glenn and he's like, yeah, we have this thing that we might be talking about and it all comes through other relationships. It's the the nature in which you engage out and friends, I wanna encourage you to see that not as a random thing, uh, not as a uh, a once in in a rare while thing, but as the norm for your life that God has put you in the places where he has you to be the tip of the spear for the gospel work that God is calling this church to do, that he's calling us as the church to do, to engage. But what about those who don't know? the gospel, who you don't know, and presently, you can't know. They're the other, other fellow, the far off one. Where are the Pauls of today? Where are the ones who say, as Paul did in 20 and 21, I make it my ambition. It's the thing that drives me. It's, the, it's the, the, this burden that I wake up with. It's not just something that I begrudgingly say, okay, I guess I'll do it. But where are those that say, by God's grace, if he would will it, if he would let me, if he would send me, if he would allow me to, I want to make it my ambition to go and preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. I want to engage people who don't know Jesus. I want to go to those hard places. Where are the Pauls of today? Dr. David Platt, the former president of the International Mission Board, recalled a story from his youth. He remembers a a missionary coming into a small country church, uh, a missionary from Africa, and he was getting up and doing like they did in the old days with the slides. Any guys old enough to remember missionaries having slides, you know, that popped up on there, and they'd wear their stuff, and they'd have all their things out on the front. And he remembers him talking about the needs and the, the gospel needed to be proclaimed and all these kind of stuff, and he said it was really compelling. And the pastor got up very moved, obviously, of the, the ministry need that was there. Uh, and everything that, he, that the pastor said was good until he got to a point. Let me just see if you can catch it. He got up and he pled with the people. He says, friends, we need to get behind this missionary and we need to, the, the gospel needs to go out. And we really need to support them and we want to give and we want to give generously and you, you need to give generously. And, and listen, if, if you don't give generously, if you're not willing to be used by God in this way to get behind this person, then, then I'm going to pray that God calls your kids and grandkids into missions. And the reality is, I don't, I don't know whether to laugh or just weep, because that's the sentiment, right? I mean, for crying out loud, who wants their grandkids to go into missions? There's no career path in that, right? Here's the stark reality of global missions, and this is from like an organizational standpoint. All of the missions agencies around the world, be they denominational, non-denominational, parachurch, whatever they are, are having an incredibly 
challenging time engaging millennials into vocational long-term ministry. All of them. And, and Christian sociologists are studying this and looking at this and going, why? Why is this, why is this rapid change happen? Why is that, uh, why is that moving away? You know, why, why are we moving away from that? Why, is, why are things changing? And if we boiled all their answers down to a simple thing, it would be to say this, that the American dream is a grand hindrance to the gospel. It is a grand hindrance to the gospel. It's hard to tell Tibetans about Jesus when you take the grandbaby with you. And grandma and grandpa say, oh, never get to see him. What's your retirement plan going to look like? How are you going to find a, afford a bass boat? Right? You're not going to make it for Christmas. And these are absolutely true. They're absolutely true. Where was Paul going? Well, he was going to Spain. Now, in our mind, it's, you know, it's a short little hop on the map. But in, in Paul's day, it was the other side of the planet. It was the other side of the Mediterranean. It, it was still where the, the, the barbarians that had yet to be conquered by the Romans were. And it, it, was, it was just... It was, completely foreign, and yet Paul knew the gospel, as far as he knows, had not made it there. There were people still there that were going to be born, live, and die, never hearing the name Jesus. And he wanted to write to this church and ask them for support so that he could go and preach amongst the unreached and the unengaged. Did he get there? Did he succeed? We, we actually don't know. We don't, we don't know if he made it there. We, we don't know if Paul ever preached in Spain. We have some circumstantial historical evidence that says maybe, possibly, but we really don't know. So was that a failure? That he had the desire to go? That Paul, like super Paul, who says, by golly, if I can, by God's grace, I'm going to go and preach in Spain. If he didn't make it, was it a failure? There was a young man by the name of William Borden in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was born to the Borden family, a very wealthy and affluent family. And like they did uh, in that time for many young men as they were entering into adulthood, at the age of 16, his parents granted him a trip around the world. Now for us today, you know, that's a passport and some plane tickets. In their day, that's train, train, wagon, elephant, boat, right? Like, I mean, like... You know, travel was a big deal back then, and so he traveled around the world, and their intent for him was for him to get a global perspective of business and economy and just have that bigger worldview so that as he took on the family estate, he could lead the family into the next generation of wealth and prosperity and benefit. But it had a different effect than his parents had, or had thought for him. Uh, he began to see poverty, and he began to see desperation. He began to see people who had never heard the name of Jesus and he began to have this burden for the lost. He owned a Bible of his own personal Bible again showing his affluence of that day and in the back pages of his Bible he wrote two words at the top. He wrote no reserves. 
this reality that he was feeling God's call on his life to live sacrificially and generously out of the abundance of his life. Well, this didn't fit with his family's life. So when he graduated, or when he finished his primary schooling and they sent him off to Yale uh, to begin his education there, he had a passion for discipling, or discipling. Late in the evenings, he would gather young men into his dormitory and he would teach the Bible in small Bible studies. He, would, he was uh, very frequent to wander the streets late at night looking for drunk men who had wandered out of bars and he would take them in and, and do just exactly like the Good Samaritan did. He would find a, a, a hotel or something and he would pay their night so that they could have a safe place to sleep off their hangover. He did this all throughout his educational uh, experience there at Yale, and he continued to feel the burden of missions. It was upon graduation that he took his same Bible and he flipped to the back, and under the words, no reserves, he wrote two more words. He wrote, no retreat, because he was setting his life apart for something different, not what his parents had originally intended for his life to look like, but what he knew God was calling his life to look like, this burden to uh, engage and make disciples around the world. He surrendered to missions and he uh, joined a missions agency and he felt a specific call to Muslims in China. Again, we, we think of you know, China being one thing and Muslims being another thing. And even in their day and even today, there is still a significant portion of Muslims in China. And he set out with this missions agency to go and become a missionary in China, working with the Muslims. But to do that, he needed to stop in Egypt so that he could um, spend some time there learning Arabic so that he could clearly communicate uh, with the Muslims that lived in China. And as he was in Cairo learning Arabic, it was not long before he contracted spiral meningitis. And one month after landing in Cairo, at the age of 25, he died. When his body was brought back to the United States for burial and along with his possessions, his parents found his Bible and looking in the back, they found two fresh words. Underneath no reserves and no retreat, they found the words, no regrets. Who owns the lostness of the unreached? The peoples of the world who do not know Jesus. Who owns the lostness of the unreached? The answer is very simple. Those to whom we're told to go and make disciples of all peoples. We do. We do. But they're on the other side of the world. How do we do that? Well, life in Christ for every central Louisianian or the world beyond, the mission that God has called us to, it's not something that the organization of the gathering place can accomplish. It's not something that the ministry departments or staff or budgets are going to be able to fulfill. One of the stark realities of, of church life in, in uh, the Bible Belt of America is we have professionalized Christianity. It's the professional Christian's job to share the gospel. It's the professional Christian's job to make disciples. It's not mine. That's what I pay him for. But this reality is that it is something that the people of God within this church are called to do. It is costly, but it is worth every cost. It's worth every cost. I think of a, a woman named Kimberly. Kimberly was one of the first uh, people to come to Christ as we served in Galena. 
and the, 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 the stark um, challenges of her life as, they tra- as the gospel has transformed her life has been unbelievable. We, every, everything that makes um, Alaska challenging as far as on a personal level, we have uh, the highest um, uh, sexual abuse of women of any state in the United States. Nearly 80% of the native women in Alaska have been sexually assaulted at some point in time in their life. We have the highest suicide rate of any demographic in the United States. Native Alaskan males between the age of 15 and 35 have the highest suicide rate of any group. Almost 100% of the native people that we work with have had a direct family member commit suicide. All of these things are a part of Kimberly's story. And yet every time as the gospel reached in and exposed that deep and abiding wound of sin and hatred and rebellion in her life, every layer of her story I'm going, Kimberly, how did, you, how did you survive that? How did you survive that? How did you survive that? And yet the gospel changes her daily. You can pray for Kimberly. She's the only believer in her immediate family and extended family. The cost is great. But who's gonna go? I mean, the reality is when people say, Chris, why, you know, why are you in Galena, Alaska? I mean, it's a village of 500 people plus 200-something high school students. Why in the world are you there? Why aren't you somewhere else you know, in, a, in an easier gig? And the reality is like, I mean, I'm not a bad preacher. I could find a gig somewhere else, right? But the reality is there ain't people standing in line for my job. There just aren't. The reason I'm there is there's people there that don't know Jesus. And when there's not any people there that don't know Jesus anymore, I'll go plant a church in the Bahamas, right? You know? You know, they always say, you know, don't tell God you won't do something. And I do that all the time. God, I won't go plant a church in Hawaii. And he says, you're right, right? (laughs) The cost is great. The cost is great. The reality for us, friends, is that to fulfill the Great Commission means that we as Christians, are going to have to lay down our rights. We're absolutely going to have to lay down our rights. Really quickly before I close on this, again in the story of Paul, just to help you see this, do you remember when Paul planted the church in Philippi? Do you remember that story? It is in Acts chapter 16. He has the Lydia and the slave girl and the jailer, right? And he gets beaten to a pulp. Him and Silas, they get thrown into prison. And this just miraculous thing happens, right? You know, the jailer comes to faith and they plant the church. You know, that whole story shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened. Because when they got arrested him and they said, we're fixing to beat you and throw you into prison, what did Paul have in his back pocket that he could have pulled out that could have stopped all of it? Anybody remember? His Roman citizenship. What you guys are doing to us is against the law. And he could have, I mean, like, I think if somebody's going to beat me to a pulp, I might, like, if I got a way out of that, I might pull the card on that, right? But why didn't he? And why didn't Silas? Do you know that 80 for, 80% of Philippi was not Roman? That the vast majority of the people that were there did not have the same rights that Paul and Silas had? And Paul could write the letter, to the, uh, the letter to the church in Philippi, this church that he dearly loved. And he says in, at the end of chapter 1, he says, uh, you saw the way in which we suffered that I now hear you now suffer in. So stand firm in that. 
And then he goes on into chapter two where he has this profound statement that we're so familiar with where he says, listen, have this same mind in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, literally in Greek, something to be used for his own advantage. Like Jesus could have been like, hey guys, I'm God, like I'm gonna name drop, right? Do you know who my daddy is, right? I'm gonna pull out my card and Paul was going, I was modeling that for you and that I didn't pull out my card. I didn't get my get-out-of-jail-free card out. I suffered the same way that you did, in the same way that Jesus suffered for us, who being of very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, being found in appearance of a man. He humbled himself uh, by being a servant. And being found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. What was it that Jesus did? What was it that Paul did? They laid down their rights. If we want to see the 6,000 unreached people groups in the world introduced to Jesus, do we have the right to live in the most prosperous country in the world? Of course we do. Do you have the right to retire comfortably and safe? Do you have the right to you know, be free to do as much vacation as you want to have and as much recreation as you want to have and as much play. Of course you do. You have all the rights to that. There's nothing in the Bible that says, no, that's a sin. You can't do that. But we willfully lay down our rights so that Jesus is glorified amongst the nations. Right before Paul said this in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, this is what he said. He said, now may the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. Friends, there's people in rural Alaska who have no hope this morning. None. In fact, when you average out statistics, they have a higher likelihood of killing themselves today than of having t- somebody tell them that Jesus loves them. And the reality is there are people outside these walls who live in that same dark, hopeless place. Who owns their lostness? We do. Let's pray. Father, this good news of Jesus that brought us from death to life is too good to keep to ourselves. God, I thank you for the faithfulness of this church. Their faithfulness to abide in you, to listen attentively for your voice, to see needs and to sacrificially give into those needs to serve people to do ministry that does not directly benefit their church. It doesn't build up their kingdom. And God, because of all of that, I pray that you would enlarge their ability to be able to do more. God, I thank you that they have come alongside us in dark and challenging times, have strengthened us, have held up our arms, have prayed for us diligently, and gave faithfully to us pray that you would have blessed them abundantly. And God, I pray that us, together with them, that we would see people who are dead come to life in Christ Jesus because of this gospel. We love you, God. It's your name that we pray. Amen.